0: And I think the judges need more leeway to take into account a person's previous history. Now, if you've been a criminal all your life in and out of jail, hey, that's one thing, you're, you know, you're done. But if, if you're 30 or 40 years old and you've never, I mean, I was mm-hmm. 50, you know, n- never done anything. But, you know, I, again, I believe that God's involved in everything. And right. if it would have been God's will to give me a year or two years, he would have allowed it to happen. But I think he knew what it was going to take for me to straighten up. No, I don't want to say straighten up and toe the legal line or whatever. Right. But to get to where he wanted me to be. Right. Where I am right now, and and but he let me out four years early. I mean, I could have still been there.
1: Hello, friend. You're listening to the edited for content show. A place where we try to understand a topic by extracting truth from theater. If you like this podcast, let me know, share it, and come back again. My guest was a law enforcement officer for over 25 years, 16 in undercover narcotics. He earned a master's degree in law enforcement management and earned the rank of commander. This was prior to his world collapsing around him. After over 30 surgeries, he became addicted to opioids and was diagnosed with PTSD. This lit the fuse on an explosion that would land him in federal prison with a 14-year prison sentence. During that time, he put, in a, he put his mind to work and earned another master's degree, this time in theology and counseling. He followed that up with a doctorate in Christian counseling and obtained a California Drug and Alcohol Counseling Certificate. When released, my guest took the worst events in his life and now uses them to speak to those who suffer from trauma, especially first responders. Welcome to my show, Norm Welsh. Norm, thanks for coming on.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: How's that for an intro?
0: That was awesome. Man. Oh, I sound pretty good
1: <laughs> there. That's all, that's all your hard work, man. I just, I mean, um, your life story, first of all, is such um, a rare testimony in being at a high point, the lowest of lows, and back again. T- kind of tell me how how this all kind of transpired.
0: Oh, I mean, it's a long story, but it it I don't even know where to start. There's there's so much to talk about, and I know we don't have that much time. But so I became a police officer at a younger age. I think was like 22 years old, but I wasn't quite aware of what they go through. Police and firemen, um, ambulance drivers, uh, emergency room personnel um, in hospitals, they see the worst of the worst, right? I mean, every day is, is either victims of crimes, um, um, you know, you see death and destruction, and it's almost on a daily basis, you know? And no one ever told me back then, it was 80, 83, that PTSD was part of the, the job, you know? So I love, love the work, though. I was an auto mechanic before, and um, I went on a ride-along, and I just fell in love with it. And I, I don't know why I fell in love with it, but I just, I just did. It was in my, I guess it was in my DNA. So I, I started off as a police reserve, which is a volunteer. And as, as you begin to learn, you can either take the job or, or, or you know, disregard it. But I loved it, so I went ahead and went to the police academy to be a full-time officer. So I became a full-time officer in 85, and one of my very first calls, well, in the first, I'd say the first month, I had to take a a call of a plane crash. This plane crashed into a a mall, a shopping mall in 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 the San Francisco Bay Area, and it was right on December 23rd, and it was about 50 yards away from where Santa was, was sitting with the kids. 14 dead and there was I think there was like 80 some odd people that were 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 injured and um, that was my indoctrination into police work you know and the the academy tells you to just pull up your bootstraps and go to the next call you know my dad was a military officer he said the same thing he goes listen you know men don't cry you got to just suck it up and, and go to the next thing. And that's the police culture in the fire department. I'll say first, whenever I never say police, department. I mean the full first responders program, mm-hmm. because it's just not cops. So about uh, 12 years in, I decided that I was getting tired of the death to just see the death. I mean, I've I've been involved in shootings. I've never shot, um, but I've been wh- where the shootings have happened. I've seen decapitated bodies. I, I've taken traffic accidents with deaths. I just got sick and tired of it. So I wanted to work narcotics. I figured narcotics is proactive. There's not gonna be that much death. So I went to the California Department of Justice. It's a state narcotics agency. And I loved it there, except for you still couldn't get out of the stress because on the daily basis, you'd see child abuse and neglect. You know, people, drug addicts, tend to neglect their, their children. Because they they focus on their their addiction mm-hmm. instead. So, after spending um, another thirteen years there, um, well, it wasn't exactly thirteen years. About four years in, is when I was diagnosed with a neuromuscular disease. It's uh, peripheral neuropathy. You know, diabetics have whether you don't have any feelings in your hands and your feet. Mm-hmm. It was complicated by. A disease called Charcot-Marie-Tooth disease, which is an atrophy of the limbs. So uh, you can never, you can't see them on camera, but so, uh, all the muscles out of my hands and my um, lower legs just deteriorate, and that's what required all the surgeries. And even though I had no feeling in my feet at the time, doctors continued to prescribe Percocet, Vicodin, you know, you name it, all all the great stuff, and. Right around that time is when the PTSD hit me. Mm -hmm. I started to have nightmares, anxiety attacks. Uh, Nightmares always revolved around death. You know, the the death scenes that I've been to. Um, Anxiety attacks were based on on the triggers. Like I'd I'd remember something or I'd see something that reminded me of a scene or or something that happened that was really bad. And I just have a panic attack. But because of the culture we don't go to seek help, right? Mm -hmm. I would, I'd be depressed for months at a time. And my wife, she would say, you got to go get some help. You, you, you have to get help. There's something wrong. And of course I'm a macho cop, you know, testosterone (laughs) and and, I got this. Don't worry. It's just a seasonal thing, you know, Mm -hmm. excuse me. I'm sorry. So that's how we're taught though. Because Mm -hmm. if you were to seek help and someone were to find out about it, all the rest of the officers would shun, would back then, I don't know how it is now, but back then they would shun you and basically they wouldn't work with you thinking that you're, you know, you're on the Looney Tunes and you can't control yourself, you can't handle yourself to protect the other officers. So that was a, a definite no-no. So I just I found out that the pills would take the edge off of the, the anxiety attacks. It would take the edge off the, the panic attacks. And then I found that Ambien would help me sleep you know, better. Mm-hmm. So I started to abuse those drugs. Then, so I was suffered with addiction for about four years. <clears throat> and then my daughter, she was diagnosed with liver tumors. And when I went with she was 21 at the time, I went with her to the doctor because she's my little girl. And um, the doctor showed me the scans and showed us the scans and you could see the, the liver tumors <clears throat> or the dark spots on the scan, you mm-hmm. should say. So that, that was a, a decline. They said right there that the surgery could result in a 50% chance of surviving the surgery. And that was just my um, time to downward spiral. I, I attempted suicide twice and um, thank God, uh, you know, God was with me at that point. I didn't, I didn't know. I wasn't religious at all. I figured that there couldn't be a God just because of all the bad things that were happening, mm-hmm. And that, how could God allow this stuff to happen? So I didn't really believe in God, but now looking back, I, I see his, his work. But anyway, um, he, he, it's, it's too long of a story, but he, uh, basically I had these thoughts in my mind about, um, about surviving. I wanted to survive for my kids and grandkids. So I didn't, didn't do that. But what happened was the addiction grew stronger. Mm-hmm. And when you're in addiction, and you're suffering from a mental illness, which the depression and um, the addiction really resulted in for me, the PTSD. You make stupid decisions. So I ended up one day um, taking drugs out of the evidence room and giving it to a guy I knew that who was going to sell it. Now, I, I wasn't going to get any money out of it, but I don't know. I, I don't know why I did it. I, I've been looking back and trying to. Figure out why, you know, and I, I still haven't been able to. Just it was just a stupid, stupid decision. Anyway, the, the, he ended up <clears throat> giving selling it to a guy that was uh, uh, um, uh, an undercover guy.
1: So <laughs> first,
0: first deal. <laughs> so my oh. my career as a drug dealer um, was was very short lived. And it was funny because I worked 16 years in narcotics. I mean, I've investigated every type of narcotic, you know, uh, case that you could imagine. So if I was truly a drug dealer, I know I would have done a lot better job at it. But I was just whacked out of my mind, you know. Mm -hmm. And so um, I got arrested and I got indicted by the feds. And uh, I got out on bail. And this is where God, God starts getting into my life is I'm, I'm out on bail. And of course, I'm just a wreck. I'm crying. I'm just, I don't know what to do. I'm at the bottom of the barrel, almost like it could get lower. So I get this phone call and it's from a pastor and Jeff Kenny was his name, pastor Jeff Kenny. And he said that he got his phone number from a friend of my dad's and he just offered me to go to church and inside, I'm not saying this, but inside I'm going, Oh God, I wish this guy would get off the phone. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm really not into it, uh, you know, because I, I never like people pushing religion on me, right? Right. And so he, he offered me the church, uh, invited me to go to the church. Said, yeah, you know, I'll think about it, and I'll, I'll you know, I'll let you know." So he, this is where he got me. He goes, "Well, before I hang up, can I say the sinner's prayer?" And I said, "Sure." You know, inside I'm going, "Yeah, knock yourself out, go ahead." You know, but he the sinner's prayer is a prayer where you give your heart over to God. And he, he said the prayer, said, do you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And I, I really didn't mean it, but I said, yeah, I do. And right. then, so so he goes, okay, well, we'd like to see you at the church. And hung up. Well, I go to, to sit on the couch with my wife and she notices something, you know, and I kind of felt different too. And she looks at me, and she goes, what's wrong? And I go, well, nothing's wrong. I actually feel better. And um, she said, what do you mean? And it, it was really difficult to explain, but it's like the weight is lifted off your shoulders right? Even though I didn't believe what I was saying, somehow the Holy Spirit was already trying to to work its way in me. So we decided to go to the church. We went to the church and I just loved it there. I mean, it was um, very loving, very welcoming. And I felt kind of at home. So my daughter decided to do a biopsy. You know, that was the first step in in her um, thing. So the pastor, right in the middle of a sermon on Sunday morning, he stopped the sermon and he said, listen, we all, I want to pray for Norm and his daughter and I want everybody to to pray with, with me. So in other words, he stopped right in the middle of this sermon. He said a prayer for healing for Jennifer Mm -hmm. and we just went from there. So about a week later, we went to do the biopsy that came out um, good. We were They had an emergency crew standing by, but everything went smoothly. And then about two weeks later, we had the doctor's appointment. So we go to the doctor's appointment for the results of the, the biopsy. The doctor says, well, we got to do another scan. <clears throat> There's something wrong with the scan. So she did another scan. We, we left. We came back a few hours later. And the doctor put up, you know, those lighted up... Um, wall things and you, they got the x-rays up there, whatever right. <clears> the <throat> scan on one side, the one I've seen before. And then the, the new one they just did. And one had the dark spots. The other one was just clean. Right. And he goes, well, the biopsy shows normal liver t- tissue. There's, there's no, I, I don't know what to tell you. It's all the tumors are gone. <clears throat> and at first wow. I got really angry. I mean, cause I was going to blame him for misdiagnosing her which caused this this downward spiral, which really wasn't going to be his fault. It was the way I dealt with the adversity, not, you know, it was really his fault. So at that moment, I thought to myself, you know, it's God, God healed her. and, And this is when I got on fire for the Lord. So I started studying and stuff. And then I ended up going to court and I took a plea deal and they gave me 14 year sentence in federal prison. So I sat in a a suicide cell for almost a year in San Jose. And that was the most horrific thing you'd ever want to experience is to be all alone, all day, all night with the lights on 24-7. We only got, or I only got out for one hour every three days to go outside. Wow. it was just um, cruel and unusual punishment. Now, I understand why they did it. I'm not blaming them and I'm not trying to you know, um, say anything negative about it. So I understand it, but for your psyche, it it is horrible. So they, one day they picked me up and they send me to Fort Worth, Texas. And it's, uh, because of my disease, they sent me to a hospital there at first. It's a, it's a Mm -hmm. low security prison, but it also has a hospital. And I was kind of upset because they're sending me so far. I'm from the San Francisco Bay area and they sent me all the way over there. But the first day I get there, I see God's work you know, I, I go to the chapel, and the chapel hires me to work in there because everybody in prison has to have a job. They, so they hired me to work in there, and um, a, a seminary came in and taught classes in there. So I started taking classes, and I, I got my master's degree in theology there and with an emphasis on counseling. And then I met some guys that were into to healing, and they started to teach me how God heals, mm-hmm. you know, and the whole, this whole time when I was on bail and the first two years of, of prison, I was going to psychologists and psychiatrists there to manage my PTSD. And there was no healing. I mean, they taught me some great coping mechanism, coping skills, but there was really no healing. So I started working with these guys. And um, one in particular was an ex-LA officer who, who uh, got a 20-year sentence. <clears throat> and he was in his last few years. But he showed me how God heals. And um, it was amazing. After about four months, I, I never had another PTSD symptom or anything. It was, it was just it was amazing. It wow. was just, uh, God's work. I mean, I, I can't say anything more than that, you know. <clears throat> so once you get under 10 years of your sentence, you can go to what's called a camp, which is um, a minimum security. So they sent me over to Lompoc here by Santa Barbara, and they sent me there. And then I was mad again because there's a closer prison that's closer to my house, but they (laughs) didn't send me there. They sent me this one. But of course, there's a plan and a purpose, right? Lumpok prison. They had a a local community college come in and teach drug and alcohol counseling, so you can actually go for to to, to your program and get your counseling certificate. So I figured God's telling me, hey, you know, this is what I think I want you to do. So I, I started that. And then I started to get a doctorate in Christian counseling because I feel that God, he, he designed us. He created us. Mm-hmm. I think It's only him that can heal us. You know, I mean, he does healing through doctors. Don't get me wrong. Doctors and psychologists, psychiatrists are all um, are put here from him. But, but I believe it's through his biblical principles that, that we can be healed. So, Then they sent me to Sheridan, Oregon to where I was supposed to go to the drug program and then COVID hit. And when COVID hit, being my age and having the disease I had, I was one of those lucky few that actually got out to be put on home confinement so that I wouldn't catch the the COVID. And so out four years early, I mean, four years early. So right now I'm on home confinement. I've got an ankle bracelet. But on home confinement, they let you work, they let you go to church and um, uh, go to school. So I finished up my school. I only had one more class to do. So I'm working right now as a a residential drug addiction counselor Mm -hmm. in a residential home here for men. And so I finished all that. And during all this process, I I wrote a book on how God heals. And um, that's in the process of being published right now. And that should be out about um, November, December.
1: Oh, wow. There
0: was never a dull moment in prison between the shenanigans going on there and my um, schooling and and writing. I I just wanted to focus my mind away from all the negative stuff and um, just focus on positive. And I think God called me to help the, the wounded because I think all of us have some type of trauma or have been through some overwhelming life experience that just keeps us oppressed right mm-hmm. where, where we hold unforgiveness where we hold resentfulness you know either from our parents or our, our our exes or or someone in our lives that we perceive that that it is harm and i, I hope very soon that they will allow me to um, go into police academies to go into um, uh, in-service trainings for police and fire mostly police because they're the ones that hold a lot of judgments right Mm -hmm. they i don't believe there is a lot of racism in because i've only seen a couple guys in my whole career that were truly racist but i've seen a lot of people that judge others and judge them for being a a criminal or or a drug addict or something like that instead of seeing a a person they see a a label a drug addict or a criminal and i truly believe that if i would have looked at people from a different perspective with, with empathy, I think maybe some of this stuff wouldn't have, wouldn't have happened to me. I think that I could have maybe gone through it a little bit better with a little more resilience. So that's my goal is to, to help these law enforcement officers see people from a different perspective because in the police academy, we were never taught. This is why people take drugs because they're traumatized. You know, Mm -hmm. they're trying to their feelings like just like i did and i would have never known that if i hadn't gone through it and i think that sometimes we're allowed to go through things that when we come out the other end in a positive um light we can help others that are going through the same thing
1: so there's i mean i'm, I'm literally typing out notes here because there's so much I, oh, wanna, I no 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 you're no it was it's you know but there's just so many things i'm i'm i want to ask you about um first of all i want to kind of go back to when you graduated from the academy um was gates the commissioner then or who was the um like for california no, i
0: never worked at los angeles police department
1: oh but i thought it was like he was over like all the law enforcement in in california oh no, california. no he, was los, he was just los angeles oh he was just los angeles because you hear the yeah. story about him and because you talked about kind of the law enforcement mindset of a very manly organization where men don't cry and when i see documentaries and things and gates is on there that's kind of that's the vision i had because that dude was like there are no sissies in my outfit like that's 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 it um so i was kind of i was thinking about that starting with the ptsd i can't even imagine what you've seen throughout your career but to start off with a two days before christmas plane crash with at that level i that's i mean that's how you started like that doesn't leave a lot of room for you know going any further down and it just kind of stay in there
0: no it and it's very difficult to process these things because you just don't have time right i've taken At least two um two sids death you know sudden infant death syndrome where three to six year six month old babies just die in their crib and Mm -hmm. get the call and the mother is holding the baby who's dead And, and you know we all have kids i had kids and another a toddler drowning you know it's very difficult to process all this stuff without taking the time to do it now I believe that things have changed now because I've been away from it for uh, 12 years now, but back then you, you would just, Hey, go to the next call. You right. Know, just go to the next call. And there, there would be times. I can remember two times specifically that I got up in the middle of the night cause I couldn't sleep and I went downstairs and I just cried my eyes out, you know, cause I didn't want my wife to even see that. I was crying. great. Right. That, that's the mentality. It's, it's, it's messed up. And it's way wrong now that I've learned how, you know, your heart and your soul processes this, this stuff. You have to deal with it. Because if you don't, you know, a guy told me, it's like holding down your emotions and, and not letting letting them out. It's like holding two beach balls underwater, right? You, you got, okay, I'm angry. I'm trying to push this one. Then bitterness comes up and you push the bitterness one down. And then hate comes up and you push that one down. And then, But pretty soon those balls are going to come up and they're going to come up with a great force. And that's truly what I think that happened to me is I was just, you know, trying to balance everything and bam, it just came out and I'm not blaming the drugs because I I made, I made all my own decisions. But when you have your mind is not where it's supposed to be, Mm -hmm. you can really make some bad decisions. PTSD, PTSD, affects every aspect of your life, relationships, decision-making work, um, everything. And back then there was no really outlet to, to deal with it. They've been military combat veterans have been the main focus and should be, I mean, they see some horrible, horrible things, Mm -hmm. but most, most of those guys are deployed two, two, three times, you know, maybe six to 18 months. You know, maybe up to to 36 months. But cops, they see it in a 30 year career, you know, Mm -hmm. almost every day. The cumulative effect is just devastating. And that's why the police officer suicide rate is so high. And um, I believe that now they're changing a little bit. I, I. No officer will talk to me right now They're because of what I've done, I'm very taboo you know, no working officer would talk to me because otherwise it might look like they're involved. Right. So, but I've had retired guys come up to me and talk to me and they're saying it's still the same way. The, the administration now accepts PTSD as a diagnosis, but you can't, if you're trying to manage, say a, a large city, you can't just let your cops cry over every little death. Right. Right. You, you have to, you just have to have them go from one call to one next call, you know, especially with all these shootings going on. I mean, the, the death toll is great. You know, these, these cops are going there They're they're seeing these horrific crime scenes and then no one ever thinks that, okay, well, an hour later, they're going to respond to, to a guy that's um, beating his mother. You know, and then when you get there and he's having a psychotic episode that, and I believe that all this stuff is all rolled into one where these, these accidental shootings or these intentional shootings, but they're not properly thought out, you know, Mm -hmm. um, happen. It's the press seems to put it on racism, but. If this is just my opinion, my opinion of of when I, as I've been a police officer, is I I haven't seen that. You know, no one says, "Oh, we're going to bleed up, we're going to beat up a Mexican guy today, or a black guy, or Mm -hmm. uh, a Native American." We're not. We're going to go do that today. No, but when these officers make the decisions, their decisions are influenced by what they've been through. Right? We behave by what we believe, and if we believe that criminals are bad and criminals are you know, they're scum, then that that's how we end up treating those people. And that's what I would like to ch- change.
1: Well, and to your point, <laughs> one thing that as you're talking and I'm thinking in my mind, you want to talk about a really kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in the sense of trauma upon trauma. Because say in the morning, of, say your shift, and I don't know what the shifts are like, but say your shift started at 6 a.m., okay? and your first experience was seven or eight, it's going to snowball through the day because like you said, if you have a large city, it's not like you can remove the officers, take them to a room, do a debriefing, get a counselor in there, talk about feelings for two, three hours, yeah. and then head back out on the streets. You wouldn't. Your patrols would be even thinner than they already are and completely useless. That being said, you have shined a huge light on something to me, that I think is so important to stress because say you've been on, I'm going to use your scenario where you were at a shooting and say they were, or a drowning and there was kids involved. Then you go to a domestic violence situation and have to try to de-escalate that. Well, then you go to a routine traffic stop and somebody's fighting you on you just trying to do your job, but you're dealing with. The trauma from the throughout the day before you get to that stop and the beach balls are coming up.
0: Yeah, exactly. You're exactly right.
1: That's, <clears throat> and I don't know if there's a simple answer to fix that.
0: There is, there is, <clears throat> I'm sorry, excuse me. There, there is none. There, there is no simple answer to that. Because, like you said, you can't, the, the last shooting I was involved in is 2008. And at that time we did, I was the commander there. So we did have a debriefing and the guy, it, it's funny how it affects too the guys that weren't there. I had two guys on vacation and those two guys thought to themselves in their mind that if I would have been there, I would have been able to help and I would have been able to, to be the one to stop this. So no one died. Yeah. But, but that's the way we, we think, right. Right. We, I'm not part of we anymore, but that that's the way they think and if they continue to to have these feelings of survivor's guilt it's the same thing as as being there and and seeing everything so it it is a a dilemma that there there is no easy answer to Mm -hmm. you know and the the more we don't train our officers about what makes people tick I, I think we're doing ourselves a disservice so these courses that I took on psychology and why people do the things they do you know to 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 take an, an addict or even a criminal a petty fee for a criminal and trace that back to the root cause mm-hmm. right so I, I'm thinking that maybe a different look of a criminal justice system to where if it's a nonviolent crime, it costs a study was done a few years back that for $23,000 a year, you could counsel a person and prison actually costs $38,000 a year. So you're spending more incarcerating that person and providing no help. Mm I mean, I was surprised when I went, I thought, that the food service was, hey, we're training these cooks, right? These inmates that are cooking, we're training them to be um, cooks out outside, and we're we're doing this other training. Nah, there, there's absolutely, I, I shouldn't say absolutely. There's very little actual training going on. Where all the classes that I ever attended that were prison ran, mm-hmm. which were supposed to be something towards your release, were all inmate ran. That they. they Put no effort into any training for the inmates there, and oh, wow, at least a third, or if not more, of the inmates don't even have a high school diploma or a GED. And part of the the rule for the feds was you had to get your um, GED before you you left there, but it was all inmate ran, so you had inmate teachers. I mean, I, I taught GED too, but you couldn't do anything if they didn't want to, mm-hmm. you know, they, they wouldn't do it. So, if we could actually take our prison system and tweak it a little bit, <clears throat> now I'm not for letting the, these guys out. You know, I mean, if they're low level, I don't, there's, there's no issue. But if you have a past history of violence, they should stay in. But if you have your low level crime, why not invest in some job training? Maybe the mm-hmm. community companies can get together. Maybe a, a company like Dow Chemical could volunteer a guy to come in and teach some kind of safety you know thing where guys could take that then they can get a certificate when they get out of prison they can maybe be part of a safety team in in DuPont or or Dow Chemical you know you know saying I mean that's just an example but um, maybe a a forklift operator's license or something like that but it's to me it looked like just a warehouse you know you you bring the inmates in and pretty much you're, you're left there Uh, on your own. And um, thank God I had the work ethic that my dad taught me to better myself while I was in there. But most people don't.
1: And and your dad teaching you that work ethic, you know, there's kind of a, an irony to that because my dad as well, and I don't know about your dad, but my dad was, um, my dad lived through the great depression and was a world war II vet. So earlier you were talking about, you know, not crying. I didn't cry the first time in my life until I was in my mid to late thirties because that wasn't something you did. Um, and it was the culture. It was the, it was the culture and it was the way I was raised, but I did have that work ethic Mm -hmm. much like yourself. You have this strong work ethic, but dealing with emotions, that's, I mean and I, and no disrespect to any of my listeners cuz I'm about to say a term that I will get killed for um when my wife hears this podcast. Emotions were for women. Yeah. That was a a woman's thing. Was emotions. I don't believe that and just full disclaimer. Um <laughs> <laughs> I don't need a, a Yeah, just I, I'd like to be clear about this. Um but that was my father. And I'm not and I'm not judging him. I'm not um you know, I'm not saying anything about his ability to be a father, mm-hmm. but there there was an emotional disconnect. Um, and I think that when men have these emotional things happen to them in their lives, we're not trained on how to deal with it. We We respond in one of two ways. It's either going to be anger or violence when emotion gets too high. And as you've experienced, and I'm sure I could point out more than enough examples, n- no good comes from either of those responses. Um, so I, I, in listening to you, you're right. You put that into somebody's hands, or you uh, that has the responsibility of serving and protecting without the proper training. It, you know, how do you deal with emotion? And a lot of these incidences that are happening out there are emotionally charged not necessarily racially emotionally but emotionally charged events one thing i thought about (laughs) and and as a former member of law enforcement you might get a kick out of this i think about traffic stops a lot because it seems like that's a huge thing And one thing I think about is people who maybe don't have the money for these ridiculous fines start freaking out from the time they get pulled over because there's going to be a lot of money involved. Mm -hmm. In Montana, they had a quote-unquote nickel ticket for years, okay? And (laughs) literally, you get pulled over, and it was five bucks, and you wow. paid it right there. Like, they pulled you over. I mean, and I, and of course it was like simple stuff. It wasn't, you know, reckless endangerment or, you know, right. you, you mm-hmm. know excess of speed or anything like that. It was like maybe a little over the speed limit or whatever. But it was a, legitimately called a nickel ticket. And it was $5. Wow. So the fines, I wonder, you know, if they pay a roll. But I think it's just that response when you get pulled over. The person in the car is emotionally charged Mm -hmm. for whatever reason. And it could be anything from, um, I apologize, my wife is traveling back um, and she just sent me a text message. She's been on vacation for like three weeks, which has been good and bad. Um, (laughs) So the person gets pulled over, they're emotionally charged because inside the car, even if they're not doing anything illegal per se it's just it's emotional get pulled over yeah. i feel that way as a white male i cannot imagine what it's like to be a person of color and add that right. extra level of fear then you have the traumatic person who's the officer who's been all day long dealing with mm-hmm. things that are just mind-blowing for me at this yeah. point that situation is literally nitro and a cigarette yeah. it's 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 huge. And it kind of explains a lot.
0: You're exactly right. And what's, I believe, again, this is my own opinion. What I believe is that the press, uh, I'm not against the press. I'm not one of those anti-press guys. Mm -hmm. But when you target officers as the bad guy, it really does a great disservice to the whole community. Because, yes, cops made a lot of mistakes. I mean, you know, um, like this did Derek Chauvin, he just got 22. Look, he got 22 years. I got 14. So it's like, really? But anyway. Oh, that's it, an
1: interesting point.
0: Yeah. He, you know, so I'm almost as bad as him, right? I almost like kill somebody. So, but so you've got guys like him that are way out the spectrum. He deserves to go to prison. I have no, you know, uh, trepidation about letting him go to prison. But then you have these mistakes. I don't know her name or where it was. I forgot. But when you have the mistake of she was said she's going to tase the guy. And she actually shot him. Yeah. I I forgot where it was. Now, she made a huge mistake. And it it was very wrong to do. And she deserves to be charged. But not charged with murder. Right? I, I don't think. Because it's really not an intentional killing. And then when you look at. The cause of these things—I got to be careful in how I say this—but the majority of the time, not every single time, the majority of the time, the the suspect or the the, the future victim in in these incidents are not complying with with the right with the uh, officer's orders. Mm-hmm. So that mixed with what you said, and then you throw in—don't forget—a lot of these guys are married and have kids. So they also have home issues, right? Oh, yeah, have got same as you and me, financial issues, you know, school issues, you know, uh, their work-related issues. So you throw that in the mix, you're exactly right. So it's a volatile situation. And all I could say is that the press should put more emphasis on, hey, just please comply with the officer's orders, mm-hmm. you know? And when things get out of hand, That's when mistakes are made, or if the officer is truly bad, that's when the officer will make the determination, okay, I'm going to have to use, um, you know, life, you know, uh, I have to use enough force that might take this guy's life to get this guy to comply. Because what I see now is I see a lot of officers getting charged, and some are rightfully so. I'm not Mm -hmm. going to argue Some are rightfully so. Some are very stupid or egregious things that they really shouldn't be officers for. But some are are being charged for a normal everyday occurrence, right? And this is why I think I see or what we will be seeing is a mad exodus from police work. I think pretty soon... And defunding the cops, I, I understand what what that's about, and I totally, hundred percent agree with diverting, not, not diverting the funds, but increasing the funds for social services, because mm-hmm. I believe that all these things are um, social for social related. Um, you know, a lot of people weren't allowed the access of of other people that other people have, the white people have. And so I I totally agree with that, where we need to put more funding in social services. But when you pull them away from the officers, uh, like Oakland, they just took, I think, $18 million out of the budget in Oakland. I just saw on the news a couple of nights ago. Well, they're going to have to do away with 80 cops. And in a city like Oakland that's got two or three, four or five shootings a day, that's going to be bad for the community. I mean, Mm -hmm. I understand where the money is going. The money is going to good things. But I think what they need to do has to be a balance, and say, okay, maybe the officers, some of that money, instead of taking it from them, that money has to be used for training. That has to be used for psychological services. Maybe even fitness testing. Maybe once a cop's been eight years, ten years as an officer, maybe they should go through a emotional, a psychiatric uh, evaluation by by somebody to say, okay, are, oh. are you still good to be a cop? You know, that's one of the things that my wife is mad at. I, I'm good with it but my wife is mad at my supervisors because I was, I was did a, a great job and I was well-respected, but not once of my supervisors, I was high, I was like equal to a Lieutenant, mm-hmm. but my supervisors never once came to me in that four to six year period. And, you know, with all the surgeries, cause imagine 30 surgeries in 10 years, basically it's over two a year, right? Oh yeah. You legs, you got at least a four or four to six week, you know, recuperation. So I was going to work in casts and stuff and, and they allowed me to work light duty, which was great, but not one of them came to me and said, Hey, are you all right? You know, what's, what's going on? I mean, one or two surgeries I get, but dude, what's, right. what's going on? And I I believe that that's because that other officers will, that their mortality will be, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Exposed. Mm. If, if they come to me and I break down and say, yeah, you know, I, I just can't, this the surgery. I, I'm, I'm, um, I'm not going to be fit to work anymore. Then it triggers something in them saying, well, maybe I won't have the long career. I, you see what I'm saying? They're afraid oh. to face reality. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure about that. That's just one of my own little, um, um, thoughts about it because, when an officer dies in, in, a, in a line of in, in in on duty death, we tend to face that mortality, right? It's like, oh, wow. You know, if that could happen to him, he was a SWAT guy or he was a, a training guy or whatever that could happen to me too. And we don't want to face that. So again, we just bury those emotions down too. So it's a very, very complex issue.
1: For sure. I don't want to go too far down. You and I could easily spend two hours talking about the opioid crisis because you've seen it. You've seen it on so many different levels, not only from your career, but also through personal use. But I do want to ask one question about the opioids when you were first prescribed to them. Were you in, and I, I want to see how I want to ask this because I want to do a comparison versus the amount of pain that you were actually experiencing when you first got prescribed versus what you were prescribed. So I give you a little example, my father who never took aspirin for anything when he was really in his like mid to late 70s, he ended up in the ER and he had arthritic pain, or you know, he had arthritis in his back, he had a fused spine, he had a lot of things going on. But he wasn't a complainer, and he didn't, you know. And the ER doc literally was like, well, do you have pain? And my old man's like, well, yeah. They didn't start him off on a Tylenol. They gave him 20 of oxycodone twice a day. Like, that was his starting dose. Mm-hmm. You can imagine what the next 20 years, or actually it was 10 years, excuse me, he died at like 86, 87. But you can imagine. Like, I mean, he, st- he was an addict by the time he went done. So with your particular situation, were you, like, how did, how did that start? Was it minimal, or did they go great guns right out the shoot, or how did that work?
0: Well, the first few surgeries, yeah, there was some pain, but my disease kept progressing, so eventually I felt no pain whatsoever, but they kept giving it to me. And I stopped taking them, really, and I used them for, like, headaches. Whenever I got headaches, I would use a strong thing. But then I would notice that it doesn't really give you a high, Mm -hmm. but it it levels out your your emotions. Right. So that's when I started taking them. But like any other drug, eventually you got to use more and more and more for the same effect. Okay. And so where I feel that the doctors, I don't want to say they failed me because that's not fair to them because they take an oath to provide pain relief for, mm-hmm. for people. So they're in a tough thing too. And maybe because of the job I had, they didn't think that, hey, I don't, you know, this guy can't be an addict. He's a cop, you know? Right. But when they prescribe more and more and they, they were prescribing my dad, hundreds of them at a time because he had the same disease I had, but it was, he was really well progressed at that time. He was in his late seventies, early eighties. Um, and I would actually, I'm ashamed of this, but I would take some of his pills whenever I went and visit him you know, so I would always have some, but I was taken up till six to eight Vicodin at a time, you know, just to feel the same way. And in prison, I met a lot of doctors that were there for prescribing um, opioids, overly prescribing opioids, or at least that was the allegation. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know their true cases, but doctors are in a tough position mm-hmm. because they, they want to do with the pain right now. It's, I believe it's the, the companies, the, the, the um, pill companies that are abusing the system, because I I believe there should be, and I bet there is a pain medication out there that does not cause, you know, these, these other side effects. Mm -hmm. And then what happens is, you know, the doctors keep prescribing the Oxy and then pretty soon the doctor will either stop or the insurance will stop paying for it. And that's when these guys go to heroin. I mean, in the, in the facility I work, we got a lot of heroin addicts that started off with the pills too. And the, the, to buy these pills on the street uh, are hundreds of dollars, where a gram of heroin is like you know sixty dollars, and that'll Jeez. last them a couple of days. So it's cheaper to go to the heroin, which is the same drug, really. Yeah, and that's why. And then all of a sudden, the needles come into play, and, and the, the diseases, and and if the fentanyl gets involved, it's it's a very complicated situation, also. We all have our own, um, it's our own fault, really. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we have to take responsibility for our own thing. But believe me, when you are in, in a tough emotional place or a life uh, place where just things are just going wrong, it's very easy just to to let the pills or, or if somebody wants to use cocaine or whatever the drug of choice may be, Alcohol. I mean, many, there's a lot of alcoholic cops out there and they, you know, I just never liked alcohol, so I never drank, but that's where we want to take the easy way out. Right. We don't want to deal with those root causes. You know, if you've been abused as a child, you don't want to face those demons back then. You don't want to, you know, uh, forgive your, your dad for, for beating you or molesting you, whatever the case may be we just want an easy way out. And that's why I believe there's so many addicts is because we just choose the easy way out. And I believe the church has a big role in this. And I think the church should step up and, and help, but the, the pain medication stuff, that's another difficult question to, to, um, to answer. And it, I think education was probably the best right now is the the early drug education.
1: Yeah. Oh no, Absolutely. Um, I'm curious, <laughs> what made your offense a federal crime?
0: It's because I knew, like I said, I was high ranking and um, I knew all the judges in the county, not all of them, but majority of them. Uh-huh. And um, they felt that the relationship between me and the federal, or not the federal, the state the county judges was going to benefit me in some way you know, and so they pretty much took themselves out of it and, and gave it to the feds. And it went, it went even real far, too. Uh, in in I, I was first sent to the count, a county near me. I, I don't want to say because uh, people might know who I'm talking about, but a, a county near me, they put me in a county jail for holding. Mm-hmm. But I knew a very high-ranking official was one of my friends, a very high-ranking official in that county. And the next day, they took me out of there and sent me to San Jose because I guess they thought that I would get an extra bologna sandwich or a peanut butter <laughs> and jelly sandwich or something. I don't know what they thought that right. maybe my friend would break me out or something. I don't know what it was, but they were very um, protective of my custody. And that's why I was in a suicide cell for so long. And it's because they couldn't put me out in general population. Right. When I went to the first prison, I had to actually sign a form saying that I wouldn't hold and my family wouldn't hold liable the prison system. Cause I couldn't take it no more. I had to get into general population. And I even went in lying. you know, I, yeah, I told everybody I was a fireman. Everybody likes firemen, you know, they mm-hmm. hate cops, but they love firemen. But you know, after about six months, um, the Holy spirit got me and said, you know, listen, if you want to really do something for, for God, you need to just tell the truth. And luckily by that time people knew that I wasn't, I had changed, right? I wasn't mm-hmm. that cop mentality anymore, and um, so I, luckily I never got threatened. I mean, I I got cussed out a couple times, and then you know, tried to be intimidated, but God protected me during my time there. So, um, but it was it was no fun.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh wait, you mean it's not like the movies where you just kind of hang out and everything's cool? Oh uh, and...
0: you know, yeah, you hang out, but you you don't really show you what kind of people you hang out with, yeah, right? Exactly. The things you have to do and and um it's the racism in prison is just and and the prisons condone it and and i'm not trying to get down on the prison officials because i mean they're in a tough position too but a white guy cannot go sit at a black guy's uh, lunch table or dinner table Mm. or or a mexican dinner table you know i found that out the first day i went to the wrong table (laughs) i got yelled at by the other inmates get out of here but You think they would encourage right I mean you wouldn't think that they want them to be segregated but i'm sure there's psychological reasons for it, but it was a slap in the face. Um, yeah prison was a slap in the face, but it was the best thing that ever happened to me, you know i'm going to go out and say that that if I hadn't have been. In prison, I think I never would have changed my life. You know, if I would have like say got away with it or oh, yeah. county jail for a year, you know, well, maybe a year I would have learned my lesson. But I think that it changed me in such a profound way that I'm I'm a much better person now, at least at least towards my family. You know, my family has told me that even though I was gone over eight years that I'm a better person now than I ever was before, right? I'm Mm -hmm. more kind and compassionate, even to my family. So it was good for me.
1: And that's, yeah, and that in itself is a blessing above and beyond Mm -hmm. everything else. Um, So with a felony conviction, obviously it's difficult for a lot of people when they get out to, and like you talked about, they don't really have options as far as like training or an ability to kind of, change their lives and move forward but you got an education and you were able to get a drug and alcohol counseling certificate right Mm -hmm. so it seems like counseling is a career that doesn't necessarily hold felonies against you in fact i mean
0: you're exactly right and when i was looking for an because i had to do an internship first I was ashamed when I I would call, hey, do you do internships? Yeah. Listen, I just want to disclose this first. And they all laughed because majority of, I I better not say majority, a lot of counselors have been addicts. And I believe that that's good because they've been there and done that, right? I can honestly say to the guys that I I counsel and that I do groups in, I know where you're coming from. I've, I've been there you know if you you go to college and i'm not putting down th- these guys but if you go to college you've never really lived life and been in, in these situations it's hard to earn the trust of a hardcore heroin addict from a counselor if you've never if they've never experienced what your cravings are and, and how your mind operates and and how you, you got criminality going on because you got to get your next um, you know quarter gram or half gram you got to rob and steal people to do that, and I believe that's within what I want to do too with the PTSD is I think that a psychologist coming in to a police department saying, you know, you guys just you got to let your feelings out, mm-hmm. you know, but then the cops go, who the hell are you, you know, right. what have you ever done, you know, come on, so I think that. Being there, I have a unique I'm in a unique situation because I, I see what the cops go through, yet now I understand what the the other side goes through, right? i, I don't I don't want to call them criminals because uh, but people who come continually get in trouble, I see what th- their situation is, right? I see I've talked to so many um, guys in prison where they've told me on how they've been raised. I mean, one guy told me, that at 12 years old, his mom died and um, his dad got on heroin and his dad shot him up with heroin so that his dad could have someone to get high with. And then a year later, he used a 13-year-old kid now to go out and sell heroin so that he could have his heroin to buy from. So this kid never had a chance, right? Mm -hmm. At 13 years old, his heroin carrying a gun and and, and selling heroin and him and his dad are, are getting high. So but cops don't look at that and say well okay this this guy's a drug addict maybe maybe i should give him a little bit of a compassion you know at at this point or a little bit of mercy at this point because i don't know what the guy's been through you you see what i'm Mm -hmm. saying and now i see that so i can i can see the faults that that cops have and i also see the the compassionate side of the other side and I, I hope that at some point soon in the next 10 or 20 years that maybe, you know, it could be a much more working together situation somehow.
1: You have a rare gift of seeing both sides of law enforcement and those on the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you one thing that I've noticed is that you're very passionate and compassionate about those who have, um, been in, in trouble with the law as to not label them. Mm. Um, and does that come more from being there or more from understanding like the word of God and not trying to put labels on your fellow man? Like what is that more based in?
0: Well, that's an interesting question. I never thought about it. I think it's a little bit of both. I think I have a heart now for people who've experienced trauma because I know that that's what brought me down is my response to the trauma. See, we all experience trauma. It's all in how we respond to it, right? We can respond to it from a, a godly perspective, which can actually cause growth and understanding but when, but as nor as as uh, I don't want to start getting too too religious. But when we respond in more of a worldly way, the world is is more the the the, the cultural norms of today. Like I said, we want to have the easy way out, right? Mm-hmm. We want to lose weight. We want to take a pill to lose weight. I don't want to go to the gym and lose weight. I want to take a pill and, and lose weight. It's the same thing with this. Hey, I'm what happened to me when I was a child is bothering me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take cocaine or I'm going to shoot up heroin or I'm going to gamble. It could even be gambling. It could be overeating. It could be anorexia, it could be whatever, any addictive behavior to make us feel better. Right. We're always looking for an outward thing to fix our, our inside pain. Mm -hmm. Right. So I didn't see that until, I got into the Bible. So it's a little bit of both, Mm -hmm. you know, and, but these courses helped me out a lot too, because it made me see things from, from a different perspective, their perspective. And like I said, prison, I talked to a lot of people. I I guess I got a a face where people want to talk to me (laughs) and they were really open with with what happened and it breaks your heart. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really breaks your heart. Some people have been just through, horrific horrific things and as society we tend to marginalize them and kick them to the curb right okay so you've really got no redeeming value to society because you've been a heroin addict for 20 years you got no job skills no nothing so you know and then what happens is they end up homeless and they're out you know under a tent in, in either la or san francisco or somewhere where there's is also no help, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe invest investing in some teams of of psychologists that will go around and, and, and more giving maybe more money to the church like Salvation Army is the greatest, the greatest charity that I've ever, ever been involved with. If you want to give money to a charity give it to Salvation Army, they, they house drug addicts, they house women that are pregnant. that they they feed the homeless, that they feed the needy. It's an amazing, and 98 cents from the dollar goes towards the charity. It's not like, you know, um, Goodwill, where Goodwill, they they take, you know, 30 cents goes to the people and 60 cents goes for the administration.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. You know, it's it's a phenomenal thing. But it starts with you and me, right? Just seeing... Not necessarily giving a homeless dude on the corner will work for food, money. But what I do is I go to McDonald's, I'll grab him a burger and, and mm-hmm. a thing, and I'll 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 give it to him, you know, because I do know that they'll feed their addiction with any cash that you give them. And I've met people that take these guys home, say, yeah. hey, you know, a cookie dinner. I got some extra clothes in the garage. This kind of stuff, because all it takes is one guy to change a whole culture right because if you help one guy and then he helps one guy and then all of a sudden another guy gets help it just spreads out and that's really what the church should be and i see that failing right now and i'm, I'm hoping that the church can, can change get back to what it was meant to be in the biblical days helping the poor people you know and and i think then maybe we could start eradicating all this homes but we've got to deal with the mental health issue first
1: oh yeah That's
0: another can of worms
1: oh yeah well and I, and i'll be dead honest with you i think that to your point about taking information from somebody who's been down in that hole i'm sure you heard the the old adage about the guy in the hole have you ever heard that one I'm not sure so there's a guy in a hole right and a priest comes by and he says, hey, Father, can you help get me out of the hole? And he says, well, I'm going to pray for you, my son. And then, you know, goes away. And then a congressman comes by and says, what's going on? And he says, hey, can you help me out of this hole? And he says, you know what? I'm going to change the laws to get this hole fixed so you don't fall in this hole again. And then he walks away. And then his buddy comes up and he jumps in the hole. And he says, what are you doing? And he says, well, I've been here and I know how to get out. You know what I mean? I haven't
0: heard that. That's awesome.
1: Yeah. So it's, would you rather get that advice from somebody who's been down that road? You talk about, you know, mental health. I think that there's a lot of people out there who are getting degrees in psychology, psychiatry, um, mental health nurse practitioners. Mm -hmm. But how many of them versus counselors are going to reach people at that level to really make that difference? My wife and I, so my wife entertains a lot of stupid things I do, just for the record. And I don't think this was stupid, but I just was really disappointed because one Christmas, before one Christmas, um, I made her help me make a hundred sandwiches and fruit and stuff in a bag, okay, bottles of water because it's Arizona and we made up all these bags and we loaded them in the car. Now I'm talking boxes upon boxes of bags upon bags of food. And we drove around and I think we found 5 people. Mm-hmm. Now, of the 5 that we gave bags out to, I will tell you they inhaled it. They like it was the best thing they've ever had in their entire life. And that those 5 people made me feel really super good. Mm-hmm. But we ended up getting rid of 95 bags. There were churches that wouldn't take them from us. There were shelters that wouldn't take them from. Us. Like we drove around trying to find somebody to take this food to give to some people. And it kind of and it bummed me out. And I know she knows I was pretty bummed about it. But the five kind of <clears throat> made up for it a little, and I felt really good about the five. Yeah. But it really I wanted to do so much more, and to me, that was something I could do. uh I saw a documentary or some little news clip or something about people that hold up signs, and I'm really kind of fifty fifty on those um some kind of have it, use it like a job it's like it's like yeah. like they have a house they have you know they it's yeah. their it's a job that they have I've seen that yeah. yeah, now, I won't lie to you if they have a dog it's a whole different story. Like I will I'll stop if somebody's got a dog cuz my thought is I'm not really worried about them as much as I am the dog, which <laughs> yeah. I guess that just makes me who I am. But um so but I think that if you can help one the problem is that as time has gone by it's not one here or there. It's 25 to 50 everywhere. And especially in Phoenix, I can only imagine in California, the different cities in California, but like in Phoenix, central Phoenix is just, the shelters are overrun. They have these fenced in yards, which of course when COVID hit was, they dispersed everybody out of those. So it's just, it's really demoralizing when you try to think of helping one and then you drive down the street and you see 25 more. Yeah. You know, um, One thing I want to do before we leave is I want to give a huge shout out to your family Mm. because my wife loves me and I have um, family in Minnesota and all over that love me. Mm. But I don't know if I went to jail, federal prison, if they're sticking it out. I have to be dead honest. I mean, they stayed through you, with you, excuse me, through the most horrific thing and the distance when you went out to texas Mm. so i really want i want to give a shout out to your wife um and i want to ask how is your daughter
0: my my daughter like i said god healed her right now she's um when i was in prison my girls i have two girls they both had uh, children so i missed their birth but that daughter is having another baby due next month so i can't wait to be involved in that but she is good, healthy. Um, my wife, I, I totally agree with you. She had no reason to stay. And I asked her, I said, you know, why, why would you stay? And what she said is, I, I know who you are. You are not the person that you had become. You know, I, I, she, we've been together a long time. So she saw the deterioration of of the, of the depression and the anxiety attacks and stuff. And she then she saw... She, she didn't know I was taking as many pills as I was taking, but she saw that decline, right? Mm-hmm. She, she saw that. And there was some planning she wanted to do. She wanted to call my bosses and she wanted to call mental health and all that. And to be honest, I, I think that might have been a wrong thing to do, but what she should have done is reached out to some of my friends mm-hmm. that, were, that worked with me and said, listen, something's wrong. Because I think when it comes from a coworker saying, dude, you know, there's something wrong with you. You need to, you know, you know, I'm seeing this and I'm seeing that. I think that might push you to, to seek help. And, but, but she's a wonderful, wonderful person. And I'm so grateful to her that she um she stuck it out and put up with uh, 10 years of just hell.
1: hell. <laughs> oh, gee. Yeah. I mean,
0: yeah, all by yourself.
1: Yeah. Here, you know. You both did a sentence. You both did a stretch, if you will. Yeah,
0: my family, yeah, was worse than me. I was sitting in there, you know, I was working out with weights and I was walking and stuff, but they had to deal with it every day.
1: Yeah. Um, so your daughter who had the tumors, is she the one who's having the baby? Yeah. Wow.
0: She's so healthy now. I mean, it's just it's I believe or my family believes this is a divine healing from God is it was there's too much that happened in our lives that was almost orchestrated Mm -hmm. or or at least when you look back now it seems to seems to have been orchestrated than to be just random acts you know I I mean like I said I was I was not a believer in, in God before so I didn't believe in that God is involved in everything but I truly believe that God has a plan and purpose for every single person, right? You know, all your listeners, you, your, your wife, my wife, everyone. And we can, two, two things we could do. We can either fight it
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and, and, and deny it and push God away, or we can go with it and receive the blessings. His plan will be done whether you like it or not. So he had a plan for me. Of course, I didn't, I didn't respond and he allowed, and he, didn't, he didn't do it, you know, because God doesn't do it. But he allowed me to make my own personal decisions that led me to, to where I'm at. And now he's involved in, in bringing me back up. And I'm not all the way back up. I mean, I'm so grateful to be home. I'm so grateful to, to be working and, and being actually helping in somebody's life. But without the things that he allowed me to go through, I wouldn't be the person I am today right and I think that he put it on my heart to do the right thing in other words w- when the, the seminary was there to go take the classes mm-hmm. I mean it would have been easy for me just to to sit in the bleachers in the sun all day doing nothing you know like everybody else was doing or or to go through the program you know and the same with with um the the drug and alcohol addiction courses I could say well two-year program you know that's that's three classes a week. And that's just too much. I'm just going to lay on my bunk and do nothing, Mm -hmm. you know? So I think he's the one that puts, if you have a dream, I think he's the one that puts the dream in your heart. And um, I'm trying not to be too pushy with the God because I didn't like it before, but I truly believe that he ordains, or his fingers are involved in everything. And it's just our duty to respond to him. And when we do, we're going to be blessed. And if we don't, He's going to let you make a more stupid decisions. And pretty soon when you're down at the bottom of the barrel, that's when you'll be
1: looking up like the guy in the hall. <laughs> you're, yes. looking up, you're looking up in the hall. That's right. Um, one thing I have to ask is what's the next evolution for Norm? Well,
0: my, my book mm-hmm. is, is the next. I, I hope and I pray that I can go to churches and and, I, and sell not only sell the book because, I mean, yeah, you want to make some money out of it, but I truly believe that God heals you if it's be his will, right? There's a lot of false teaching out there that says, well, if you have enough faith and you pray, and we, I dealt with this when I was, when I was there in prison, guys would come to me and say, pray for my mom. You know, she's got cancer. And um, I I saw this preacher on TV that said, if you have faith, he's going to heal you. And if you got enough faith, he's going to give you a Ferrari, you know, Mm -hmm. all this kind of stuff. Well, everything has to be in God's will, you know? And when, when his, his mom died, he was real, he, he was saddened and he stopped believing. But if you think about it, God healed her. I mean, if you believe in Christianity, you believe that God took her up and now she's healed. Oh, yeah. So you got to look at it from a different perspective. Death. If you're if a, death as a Christian, you're going to a great place. You're going to be next to, to Jesus. But who suffers is us, right? Because we're going to miss them. But we, too too many of us take it too far and go. I don't know why God had to take her. But but you don't know what what would have happened. I mean, you never know. Next day, maybe there was a, a shooting that she'd be involved in and just hit walking along the street. Getting, you know, you just don't know. Right. And and God, ha- I believe that God has our time set. But um, so the next step would be to go to churches what I want to do is I want to start lay ministries in, in churches. What, in other words, people that are interested in helping, that got the helping heart mm-hmm. will, will take this, this process, because it really is a process. It's a process of self-evaluation, confessing and repenting, kind of digging into that deep root and then doing like a spiritual cleansing. And once that happens and this parallels secular uh, psychology, it's called CBT cognitive behavioral therapy. It's the same thing except one is just uses God as, as its power. And the other one uses ourselves as our own power. Oh, okay. So it's, it's a client centered is, is the secular and God centered or Christ centered. That's my book's name. Christ centered healing is the other one, but all the stuff is all the same. When you look through the process, you'll see, you know, forgiving others. That's a main thing. we got to forgive others because what it does is it relieves the, the the weight on our chest, right? Mm -hmm. We're not forgiving for the other person. We're forgiving for ourselves, right? And then forgiving ourselves and, for you know, forgiving God for, you know, so as we teach people with a healing heart, people that want, we can make the church a place where broken people can come and get healed, right? Some churches are doing it now, but not to the vision that I have where, People can come in and and really deal with their issues from someone that's with minimal training can really help them mm-hmm. go the things they want. Because it is you don't have to be a psychiatrist. You don't have to be an alcohol counselor or drug counselor. All you have to know is, is God's basic laws and principles. And that's it. And that's what I would like to do is go from church to church. Um, talk about trauma. Talk about healing the trauma. Because we all just bury it. You know, and that goes with church people, too. We bury it. And how's that working out for us? You know, not not so well.
1: Absolutely. Where do we find you, Norm? Where are you at?
0: On the web, Mm -hmm. Christ-centeredhealing.com. And on Facebook, um, Christ-Centered Healing. And hopefully the book will be out in November or December. I, I will post it there. And if anybody's going through something they just want to talk about, please feel free to email me through there, and um and we'll we'll talk because I think that everybody deserves to tell their story because it's only through our our testimony where we process things and we're able to deal with it. So if anybody has has any issues and they feel that maybe they won't be judged because I've been through the ring or two, um, just go ahead and email me and we'll talk
1: outstanding you know what and Norm, i'm going to put all your links um into the show notes as well as um, my blog posts and all my uh social media and make sure that you know they have a way to get to you for sure um and then when your book comes out you better email me and you can come on back we're going to talk about the book how it's going for you um and And kind of of oh no absolutely and kind of see uh you know how things are going and and more importantly um see if we've you know, you've reached that goal of uh, getting around to where you can kind of make the rounds a little bit. Um, Norm, you, there's just so many things I can say about you, um, not only for your service and for your um, putting your life in danger for the service of a community, Mm -hmm. but also for, you know, not wasting the gifts that you have and just kind of bugger off with it once you're you know i was like oh i'm this is as good as it's gonna get and now what you're doing for others um thank you no thank you it's been a pleasure having you on and you are welcome anytime
0: thank you so much god bless you
1: bless you sir thank you you've been listening to the edited for content podcast again if you enjoyed it let me know share it and come back again thanks for listening my friend have a great day